You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. There's so much uncertainty in everything today. Is the Ukraine war going to be a multi-year stalemate issue? Or is Putin going to get deposed by his fellow oligarchs? Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Next Big Trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade and thanks for joining us. This week, we've invited Lawson Steele back to follow up on the EU carbon credits idea. Lawson's one of the most highly respected analysts in the carbon and EU ETS market. He's been in space since 2004. And in Jan 2006, he was a guy who predicted carbon prices would go to zero in phase one. Uh, it's been the most prominent EU ETS carbon bull since Jan 2018, when it was trading at eight euros. It's probably at 80 euros now. Lawson, thanks for coming back. How are things? How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good, thanks. Um, now, now recovering from having tumbled off my uh, mountain bike and breaking my shoulder, but I'm six feet thin, so uh, <laughs> we're getting back. <laughs> where, where are you right now? Because you're, you're not at home. No, I'm in Croatia. You're in Dubrovnik or somewhere? No, I went to Dubrovnik the other day and never been before. My God, is it beautiful. Spent one day there, but I'm going to go back at the end of September. Uh, I spent a couple more days. I'm in uh, North Split. Ah, very nice. Yeah, sweltering 35, 36 degrees. Right, which is fine, except for the absence of significant amounts of air conditioning. It's hard to get as much as you'd like. Well, there's a thing, you know, if I go into meltdown, it's because of you, because you wanted me to turn off the air con so you could hear me. So <laughs> we, we are hard, hard people. <laughs> yeah, people yeah. Everyone says tough people. So I want you to to ask you about the investment thesis on EU carbon credits. What's changed in the last few months? I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine, stuff has been getting tougher. Has anything changed? Has the prognosis changed for this market? I don't think so, but there are some things flying around at the moment. So you've got the Fit for 55 package, which is, you know, how they're going to achieve their 2030 goals now that they want to reduce emissions by 55% on 1990 levels instead of 40%, which is what they currently have. There's a bigger onus being put on the EU ETS scheme, as I kind of talked about last time, because the EU ETS scheme, which which accommodates about 40% of industry in the EU, has a 61% reduction target put upon it at the moment, maybe 63 if Parliament get their way. So there's a bit of noise flying around and Parliament having one view, Council having another one, and and ultimately these two are going to get together and they'll, they'll, yeah, they'll get together. But on top of that, we then also had the EU say that they wanted to raise 20 billion euros for Repower EU. And the 20 billion is to come from carbon, uh, from the carbon markets by selling, you know, additional permits or allowances to get to that level. And that spooked the market because out of the blue, it's yeah, it's kind of interference, isn't it? Now, you can understand that this is a 
you know, exceptional circumstances. And therefore, you would hope that, you know, it's a one-off and that's it. But there's no formal wording guarantee which we've had off these guys, uh, off the EU yet. So there's a bit of uncertainty there. But ultimately, if it is a one-off, I'd be reasonably comfortable that I think the market can absorb that. So, yeah, that's kind of roughly where we are. So I have problems with the one-off thing. For one, this may be obvious to you because you can see a picture of me, but some people have suggested I should lose weight. Um, (laughs) The other day, my wife caught me eating a chocolate bar, and I told her it was a one-off. Now, this was a complete lie. It's not a one-off. I eat chocolate bars regularly. I just don't get caught regularly. Um, And I can't help but think that the same thing which is true of me is true of the EU, which is that I can withstand anything other than temptation and discomfort. And as we go into a situation where there's not sufficient Russian gas, either because we choose it to be the case or they choose it to be the case, we're going to have more and more one-offs because the alternative is suffering, discomfort, and a lack of sweet goodness or or in this case, gas, but I was obviously focusing on the chocolate. Is that not obviously the case? I mean, do you really buy the idea this is a one-off? Well, that's what spooked the market, of course, and me too. I think the EU, well, I know the EU took this measure uh, not lightly at all. They're completely aware what they've done and the repercussions it might have. I think, therefore, they also know that if they did it twice, then that would be really bad news. Once is not good, but you could kind of, if you want to justify it a little bit, even though you might not like it, and I don't think anybody likes it for that matter, but you can kind of see where they're coming from. They've got their repower EU, and they want to finance that in some shape or form, and carbon is part of that. Are they going to do another repower EU? It is really difficult because they need to take into account that if they kill the market by doing this again, then they kiss goodbye to the climate ambitions. And they also kiss goodbye to, you know, at today's prices, about, you know, 60 billion, 50, 60 billion of stealth tax revenues distributed to the EU 27 members. Now, the thing is that they're also talking about implementing uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. So this is the mechanism by which it equilibrates, if you like, imports with domestic players on on a carbon, puts them on the same carbon footing. The revenues of the carbon border adjustment mechanism are destined to go to the EU, whereas today's carbon revenues get collected by the EU but given to the 27 members. So the EU said, oh, hang on a minute, I want a bit of that as well, hence the 20 billion. But they are going to get the carbon border adjustment mechanism revenues coming their way. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's not a done deal, but it is it is being sort of suddenly pushed by also von der Leyen and, uh, and team. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So I have this trade. 
And of course, when you have a trade, you're more likely to invite people who you know, who like the trade and who talk about the trade to come back on and talk about it again. When I looked at this situation, I was I was worried, as you pointed out, for the reasons you pointed out. But it did occur to me that the underlying energy security situation in Europe did justify an expansion in the number of carbon credits in total, simply because you thought you had a load of gas. In fact, you're going to have to shift to a whole bunch of coal. And that would justify more credits, at least on a one-off basis. You know, Has that situation stabilised? What is the energy mix for Europe going to look like over the next two to three years? For me, the calculations I've, I've done, which <clears throat> you have to do on a country-by-country country basis, because that's how you need to look at the energy picture, the switch from coal to gas was about a 100 million ton, 90 million ton reduction in carbon. And that's kind of what I modelled. And that's what I modelled back in, in January 2018, which kind of played out. But then, of course, we've now had a, a retrenchment from that. So it's not as if we're not burning any gas at all, uh, but we have had a, a retrenchment. So maybe we are, you know, 40, 50 million tons of additional burn, if you like, or emissions. If you look at what the, the 20 billion euros is uh, at today's prices, you're talking about, you know, 40 million, 50 million sort of allowances every year for four years, that kind of thing. Just to put it in context, that's roughly the one-year burn, if you like. There's so much uncertainty in, in, in everything today, and it's a really difficult way, difficult to call which way things are going to pan out. But is the Ukraine war going to be a multi-year stalemate issue, or is Putin going to get deposed by his fellow oligarchs because they've lost a ton of money and they know if they get rid of him? They'll get back into the world of, uh, you know, recuperation, shall we say. So you, you just don't know, right? So so that's the difficulty. We don't really know what, which way we're going at the moment. Let's assume the worst, because I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. Or um, half chocolate bar full or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, chocolate bar half finished type of guy. So... <laughs> I always wonder why people assume that Putin is the worst that Russia has to offer in terms of governance. Ivan the Terrible was not named that way because of his kindness towards animals and orphans. If you were to depose Putin, it's not obvious that the next guy is going to be nicer. He may well be someone we dislike. If Putin doesn't go, apart from Ukraine winning this war, which seems unlikely to me, then we are almost guaranteed to be in a situation where we have difficult decisions to make on energy security. So how would you imagine in that scenario, the European energy complex will evolve? What have we got to look forward to apart from a really cold set of winters? Well, I mean, you're going to have to expand your facilities to take in LNG. But of course, you're competing with Asia and the rest of the world. But the US will be supporting to some extent uh, that they can and want to any resistance against Ukraine and therefore they can now ship gas uh, and expand that and accelerate the renewables bent. But I think that has 
probably its limitations, but nevertheless, that's what you've got to step on at the moment, right? And then the bigger question is, you know, do you turn back the clock and, and open the nuclear plants? But I don't see that happening uh, in Germany, given that they're going to close more by the end of this year. Now, why is the Green Party happier to go with coal than nuclear? What's the underlying logic there? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask them. But but if you go back to 2011, when you had Fukushima, Germany was, was literally in discussions about extending the lives of nuclear power plants. And then Fukushima happened. And literally the next morning, Angela Merkel turned around and said, we're not going to extend your lives. Actually, we're going to cut them. I mean, complete volta fast, 183 turn in 24 hours. I can't imagine... Not that I'm a tidal wave expert, but I can't imagine a tsunami roaring through the the Rhine or or the Baltic Sea. But hey, that's the that's their fear. Not without the use of strange undersea nukes, anyway. I I can't imagine it either. It's it's interesting. You boil water for thirty years using nuclear fission, and all they ever remember is that one tidal wave accident that. <laughs> massively contaminates an entire area yeah. of of Japan. This is where we are now. And I are simply because there are a lot of uranium bulls. And there does seem to be quite a good case for uranium. But it looks like Germany and the German Greens are not particularly interested in, in exploring that alternative power source. Not at the moment. But, you know, when, when we have a cold winter and people start suffering badly... Um, you know, you can reappraise things, right? Well, and this is why I'm kind of agitated on this. I, I've seen that Nord Stream 1 and 2 seem to be shut down already for maintenance. Part of the maintenance issue appears to be a turbine that was sent to Canada for repairs or maintenance that hasn't come back yet. Part of it appears to be scheduled maintenance. I'm a little concerned that the Russians are deliberately restricting supplies to put Europe into a tougher place with regard to their inventories of gas when we run through to winter. Is there really enough coal to prevent energy rationing if that were the case? Well, first of all, in your former point, I I completely agree. I mean, I'm I'm sure that's exactly what Putin is doing. He's quite good at being cold-hearted and uh, putting pressure on people. You know, what you've got to do in the winter is is first of all look after the populace that's more important than making sure that buyer or basf or whoever well buyer swiss basf or whoever carry on producing their their widgets so what you do is you you make sure that residential gas continues to be supplied if you've got some left over you burn it to create electricity and then thirdly you know, whatever's left over for for industry, if times are super tough, which they could be. The thing about coal is is that there's been coal plants which have been shut, which now have to be reopened. So there's a de-mothballing, if you like. But there is coal around. But, I mean, I haven't looked at the actual dynamics to see what that balance is in, in Germany to see, you know, how they get through. But certainly it's not going to be easy. One of the reasons I was particularly alarmed at this is I just did the the kind of superficial government bond trader dive which is always badly informed into how big a proportion of German GDP bulk chemicals were as far as I can see bulk chemicals account for something like 10% of German GDP Um, natural gas is not 
all of bulk chemicals, but it's a lot of it. Mm. Um, it's a feedstock for an awful lot, one way or the other, either as a heat source or as a, the actual underlying chemical feedstock. You were right first time around. Bayer is based in Leverkusen. BASF has an enormous complex with something like 200 chemical plants and electricity distribution clumped together. This is all designed to work seamlessly with Russian gas. Without Russian gas, 10% of German GDP goes missing, and it ain't just Germany. If anything, my guess is that European markets have not fully factored in how bad bad could get. What makes it worse, in my humble and badly informed opinion, is that I don't think Russian coal is getting to global markets yet. All that Russian coal used to go to Europe, or at least a bulk of it used to. The logistics for it, the line for it, ran from the railway lines that would go through Ukraine now. The Russians would have to rejig their logistics to move coal to Asia. The problem is there's only one train line, a quite a famous train line, to do that with. And the, the shipping routes are not great either for this. They have trouble getting ships together. So I think the world's gone into a coal deficit because of you know that southeastern Russian coal complex and also Ukrainian coal complex has been shut down. This explains why you have 4,000% increases in things like Peabody Energy. It's now only 2,000%, but at the peak, Peabody Energy from its lows in 2020 was up 4,000%. I am not sure there's enough energy in the world. Tell me something comforting. <laughs> How have I got this wrong? Oh, man, you're, you're sort of um, veering off my area of, of expertise. Uh, what you're saying is, is, is sensible, isn't it? I think if Putin is trying to force the world to accept his permanent visit into Ukraine, then I'm not sure he's terribly interested in shipping coal because he's squeezing them on gas. He'd like to squeeze them on coal as well. Well, he probably isn't interested in shipping it to Europe, but it wouldn't matter if he could ship it to Asia. Yeah. Big problem is he can't ship it to Asia, so the globe goes into deficit. Mm. Um, which is great if you're Australian, bad if you're everybody else who you know who, who doesn't mine enough coal. So good for Poland, bad for the rest. So we're potentially looking at electricity rationing over the winter in Europe, which I think would be kind of semi-catastrophic. You can't see why I'm missing anything, can you? Well, you could see rationing, but I think it's going to be. I think the rationing again is going to be just like the gas. So you you try not to curtail supply to residential customers and then you know what's left over you, you you're going to have to force industry to work at night and sort of shape shape that load so it's, mm. it's not just about saying right you're not going to have it you can say well you can have it in you know from two to four in the morning and you're sorry you're going to have to adjust your industrial shift accordingly or that's a really good point i'd miss that completely that we can do peak load pricing and off-peak movements and suddenly we get a whole bunch of German industrial work yeah. happening at night. Although I think the bulk chem plants get shut down on any scenario because they just use up too much gas. Another thing that kind of got my ears pricked up was some of the noises I've seen around the whole carbon credits trade from coal-producing EU states like Poland. They've been quite harsh about speculators 
and speculate. You know, what can I say? I am a speculator, right? It's ninety percent of what I do in my, you know, all my time. And the idea was that speculators shouldn't be allowed to benefit from the current situation. Well, I don't know how you run a carbon credits market without speculators. What are your thoughts? Well, I completely agree. I mean, whenever a price goes up a lot, then, and in this case specifically, it's, you know, it's blamed on speculators. But, you know, you've had the financial regulator, ESMA, investigate this uh, because they're told to and came up with the, you know, the fact that actually, you know, the system is operating perfectly well and it's not due to, to speculators, it's due to fundamentals, which we've also had Ursula von der Leyen say and Franz Timmermans and so on. But nevertheless, you still get these guys making this noise. So in order to appease them, it's, it seems like Parliament is pushing for a review in 2025 to see the, you know, what the role is of financial speculators and so on. So it's kind of, you can't just shut them up and tell them to, to bugger off. You've actually got to say, okay, you know, we'll give you a voice. We'll think about it. You can, by 2025, we'll do something. And then you're kind of kicking the can down the road. But ultimately, you know, the system was designed to incorporate financial uh, speculators. Uh, of course, you can always undesign that. But the reality, too, is that if you... They're talking about banning uh, or trying to ban them from, from the physical carbon market. Yes. But financial speculators actually are not very big in the physical markets. Or they're bigger and is on the futures and derivatives and so on. So that's not physical. And actually, if you even if you wanted to ban them from that, I think you'd have great difficulty in doing so because you haven't got a clue really who has what and how's what and blah, blah, blah. So there's always going to be ways around it. But in any case, if you ban them, you are taking out a huge amount of price discovery and you will accentuate volatility. I mean, you know, the carbon will be going up and down like a proverbial yo-yo. On beans. <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I can't help but think that the people who are lobbying to get rid of the specs are really lobbying to get rid of pe- force people who have taken a position earlier than them out of their position so they can buy them up cheaply. And I don't think the whole carbon credit market is anathema to a Polish coal producer. What he'd rather have is to see that thing die and to be able to sell coal without paying any of that profit away. No, no, I was saying he, he would, but at the same time, Poland are getting 17% of the annual auction volumes from the system. So they're getting 17% of 50 billion, which is what, 34 billion. Is that right? No, my maths is wrong there. A lot, no, sorry, 17 billion. They're getting 17 billion, which is nuts. My suspicion is they're going to want more. It's going to be an Oliver Twist sort of situation because they're right on the front line of what's happening in Ukraine. And I think when you made the point about this being, this could be quite long-lived, you're absolutely right. Either if the Russians win, the situation won't get any better. We'll have a frozen conflict on Europe's eastern border. 
sorry, win should be in speech marks because I don't know how to define exactly what win means. It's hard for me to imagine a situation where the Ukrainians push the Russians out of Ukraine completely. We see this situation persisting. That means Poland is sitting on, I don't know, how many, that, four million Ukrainian refugees? They're going to have all sorts of both moral and tangible claims on the EU for assistance. So I would not be shocked if their demands increase and escalate from where they currently are. No, I wouldn't either. But uh, that's that's it, it's actually nothing new for Poland. This used to be part of the problem that whenever the EU tried to do something in carbon, but actually in anything else, you needed unanimous approval. And Poland say yes, or well, not very good <laughs> Polish, but whatever it is, no. Yeah, and uh, my Polish is limited too. <laughs> uh, shame on us. So Poland would say no, and then that's that screwed everything. And that's why in November 2014, I think it was, they changed the, the approval system from unanimous to a qualified majority, which is kind of like two-thirds or so, depending on, on, on how, of, well, roughly two-thirds. And that was really to sort of you know, bypass all these objections. But Poland saying no is nothing new, and they always want more. And yet, actually... You know, they've been given a massive fillip. Not only do they get this 17%, which of course is 9 billion, not the 17 billion I was talking about earlier, but the Eastern European utilities continued to get from 2013 onwards a sort of 90% free allowances, uh, as opposed to the Western utilities, which went from 90% in 2012 to zero. Uh, so, there's, so there's been an awful lot of money thrown their way which they haven't done an awful lot with. And yet now, you know, there's a lot of moaning about it still. There's never gonna, they're never going to stop moaning about it because there's money at stake. You can't really assess to what degree people are, uh, their arguments are in good faith. If you were to have to bet on how the European utility, energy utilities would pan out over the next two years. How, what do the energy utilities have to do to stabilise their situations? What's the longer-term prognosis for what's going to happen in Europe? Let's assume that there's a status quo of lack of gas going forward, uh, mm-hmm. which I guess is underlying your question, but just to make it specific, I think it's a combination of load shedding, uh, load balancing, either sort of doing it in the middle of the night if you can, a shift to trying to build more renewables and fast track that. But I think the system is pretty tight as it is, so it's difficult to to accelerate further. Obviously, coal takes its bigger share. And you get more LNG in as you build more regasification plants capacity. I don't see the nuclear sort of turning around in Germany, uh, but obviously continues in the UK and and France. Yeah, there Um, there were definitely positive plans in Sweden and in the UK. Whether they actually come to fruition is another matter, but... Yeah, yeah. It's always very long-winded and costs several times more than you expect and and so on and so on. Um, It's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that's probably roughly where where it's headed. Lawson, thank you so much for coming back and updating us on what's been happening. I really appreciate it. 
if people want to keep abreast of your thoughts, what's the best way for them to follow what you're writing? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter. That's about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Keep it. Treat them mean, keep them keen. I totally agree. Thank you so much, Lawson. Let's speak again soon and enjoy, uh, enjoy Croatia. Yeah, thanks. I can put the aircon back on now. I think so. You're looking a you're looking a little sweaty right now. I don't know whose fault that it's is. Getting warm. Yeah, it's getting warm. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Have a great vacation. Enjoy. Thanks a lot. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.